This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magania. Surge, part two. Welcome back. In part one, we heard the stories of physicians in New York and New Orleans. They were patient, creative, flexible communicators, and big thinkers. They urged us all to prepare for something beyond our imaginations. And their stories definitely expanded my own imagination. They definitely did for me as well. Part two of Surge is all about the nuts and bolts of a medical surge. I interviewed Dr. John Rose, a professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis and the director of EMS and disaster for our department. He's also the director for Yolo County EMS. John basically knows everything, so we wanted to hear from him how we handle surge on a macro level. How do we plan for a surge of patients from a staff-specific perspective? I think it's important for emergency physicians to understand what we have said in regards to surge, if you, if everyone recalls, a lot of us have been planning for, you know, different disasters or surges in our hospital. Most of it is around uh, really acute events, you know, the intentional MCI, like an active shooter or a bomb or a plane crash or some kind of, you know, chemical spill where you plan for a surge of 50, 80, 100 people to your hospital, to your emergency department within a very short period of time. And that's what we've always kind of classically thought of as surge. And maybe the analogy would be like if you have your faucet underneath your kitchen and it suddenly the, the pipe breaks and the water shoots out from underneath your sink, you go, oh, wow, I have to get some stuff together. That's how we've kind of always been planning disaster. As we look through this in the future, we kind of try to understand and do an after action on how we looked at this pandemic. I think the concept of surge was very different as opposed to the pipe breaking under the sink it's like you went away for the weekend and there was a slow leak. And when you got home, there was water all over the house. And we haven't really thought about that kind of staffing because from an emergency medicine standpoint, it's really more of a, a command center. So the way we in the federal system run disasters through FEMA is really from the local level, the county through the state, up through the feds. And it all involves the ICS system, incident command. And the principle of that is that you have systems that are identical everywhere, People know who they report to, not a lot of people who are reporting. And so you have a very clear kind of way that you do a process when something goes wrong. And then hospitals have a version of that called the HICS command, which is the hospital incident command system. Now, we were very fortunate that our hospital activated its HICS system long before the first patient came to California because I knew this was coming. But we really didn't understand what the implications were going to be, especially with staffing. Because when it involves a pandemic, you now have your staff at risk for getting ill and injured from this event. We always surge up to protect for that first day or something like that where you get volunteers that come in and everyone's really excited and wants to help. But once you get down the road a ways, as I think we've seen, is you kind of run out of people. Now, technically, the Hicks Command Center of any hospital is in charge of the logistics, which is both getting supplies and personnel. So how do we staff for that? Well, I think it is understanding that the main resource you have, the providers, if you have a pandemic or a chemical exposure that could happen and be brought in, that your providers now are, you know, your logistical asset that is going to be lost. And how do you back up for that? 
It's a great question that I think all of us are trying to explore. As you know, we try to do double and triple call systems built quickly for us. Um, but really, there are systems that, much like happened in New York, you had to get providers from outside of your state. So there's emergency credentialing, and that gets handled usually by the Hicks Command Center within your hospital because they, in essence, are granting privileges to a doctor or a nurse or a technician, whatever you're bringing in, to practice within that place. I think it's important we realize that this all falls out of the federal system because it really means that hospitals have to think about this ahead of time. How are we going to make these adjustments? So does that mean that beforehand we set off cutoff values, like if we have this many patients or if we're anticipating this, then we'll start activating doctors from other departments, and then at that point we'll activate from other hospitals and from other states? Like, Are there predefined cutoff values? Yeah, that's a great question. And we worked with our intensive care group as well as the hospital um, trying to look at what are our triggers, what are going to be the things that are going to set off the next component. And I think we, we learned that, that it's hard to make any of those metrics hard. Um, and, and one has to be careful in a disaster or in a, a pressure mode like that, that things be fluid. Because as I say, you know, any disaster you drill and train for, the real one will be 10,000 times worse. I think we can think of many events um, such as Katrina and things like that where that was very true. And certainly in New York, what they realize is, you know, these people came in and they had a really busy period, but then it just, they never left the hospital. And then it got busier and busier. And these people take a long time to get better. And so back to your question, do we have a trigger? I think it's it's hard to figure out where that trigger would be in terms of numbers. You know, once you get to the point where you're trying to bring doctors from other communities to come because you have no more doctors, you're well down a pathway of things. But certainly, we've already developed a a primer for how to bring other services down to our department who can help us render some minor care, many services who are willing to step up and we can have them come back us up, much like the ICU would need the same kind of backup, probably more than we would in the long run. And they too have to have a, pol- a way of to kind of to onboard people that are already credentialed in the hospital. How do you onboard them? And we're trying to explore that right now because we've learned these lessons about this kind of chronic surge, if you will, for lack of a better term. Let's go back. Who is part of a HICS usually, and um, how do they know when to get initiated or when to when to start the process? Yeah, so the HICS command system is not necessarily a medical system, per se. So it's all part of the FEMA ICS incident command system, but they had to have a version that was for hospitals because the ICS is really how does the you know the fire department and the police department and the Coast Guard and everyone talk to each other. That involves the ICS system. But once they get to the hospital, hospitals have their own kind of systems and governance and have to be able to report and ask the state for things. So generally, it's hospital leadership and they bring their disaster preparedness. But a lot of it isn't necessarily about patient care. It's really about logistics, which is a major component of ICS. Like, how do we get enough of any piece of equipment or pharmacy things or personnel or maintaining a lot of just the operational standpoint of that Hospitals have to outline this. It's required, and we drill on it every year, and they have to go through the plan. And we luckily have a very nice facility for our command center, but it's really where all the information is to go to, and that's where the decisions get made. The biggest concept in disaster is having um, unified command, and you want to make sure you're going to one person, and I think we can all relate to this. When things are getting stressful and out of control and we all want to act, we go ask people, but sometimes we're not asking the right person. And so the purpose behind this, all this operation is to go through the right people so the information goes to the right place 
in the command center. And they ultimately would be the group that would decide we need to get outside personnel and have emergency credentialing. So HICS stands for Hospital Incident Command System. And it is composed of administration and some physicians, I think administrative physicians typically. So the chief medical officer is usually part of it, but it'll be all the engineering people, every operation, security is part of it, finance, you know, it's every component. Because understanding when a disaster happened, most of the time the issues that are really big are medical, but it's everything that supports medical. So it's having ability to purchase things, has security so that people can't come in the hospital where they want to. It's making sure there's food and water running. And a lot of things that really in that kind of operation, I think, you know, when you're in the midst of looking at how a system works, there are many pieces of that have to go, not just necessarily the patient care part of it. If you're trying to procure ventilators or more of, you know, whatever widget you're looking for, that system is the one that where everything's unified because everyone's in one room to decide how are we going to get that part right now. Like, how do you know when this is a disaster that HICS needs to be deployed? You know, when does everybody need to get working in from the HICS? HICS can be activated for any reason that a system decides. So it can be all the way from a, an internal disaster if their power plant goes down. So there's not really a defined time you use it. But most groups, if you have a well-organized one, they can feel fairly liberal about activating it. And one of the benefits of a lot of training is sometimes it's nice to activate things even when you know you won't need them, just to practice doing it. Uh, in this case, I think there was enough traffic and information coming in that you know, we have to ramp this up because the Hicks Command Center isn't like a thing that turns on and is going in a matter of minutes. You know, a lot of these people, everything has to get brought in, which is why we've always planned for the immediate surge when you get a, your first 100 patients in six hours because Hicks may not even be operational at that point. So, John, anything else that you think we should know about preparing for provider surge? Any tips for those of us that are not part of HICS or part of the planning? What can we do on a personal level to be able to help out when that time comes? I think this event, which was a natural event involving the whole planet at exactly the same time, is unprecedented. It was an event that was able to illustrate how, in many ways, we were ill-prepared for this process to kind of come into our country. And many locales and many states did wonderful things, and everyone has tried to, to look at certain things. But I think we all learned that we all have to be ready. We all have to be mindful when alerts come out. We have to all be mindful when cautions are given. And really, the benefit of any disaster structure is good command and control. And I think if we can do that with our own staff and that people understand what the command and control st structure will be, it makes it better, which means a lot of drilling, a lot of um, exercises to try to find the holes in your system so you can see what's going to go wrong. Knowing that when a disaster hits, it's all going to go wrong, but making sure your team knows and your staff know to kind of flex with that and make a difference that way. Luckily, in emergency medicine, that's our normal daily job, so we tend to be a more flexible group than sometimes other groups that have to come participate, and they have to kind of learn to be flexible like we are. Okay, John, that was super helpful to get a little peek behind the curtain of Hicks. Any last thoughts? Be positive. And remember, everyone's a hero here. Everyone's a hero. So thank all your, your friends and your colleagues and the family. Everyone's a hero out there. And obviously, your speaker had a very powerful story, and they truly were heroes during a very, very challenging time for any clinician. We thank them for their service and, and all of that. 
That was really fascinating to hear how we prepare on a macro level. Yeah, it really got me thinking. And actually, Sarah, I have started a quality improvement process to improve the care of children in the emergency department. I'm meeting with the people who make these decisions so that I can start to better understand how it works at our hospital. Yeah, we need to have at least a working knowledge of how these things work and what our role is. We saw this in our episode Last Stand in Santa Rosa when Dr. Josh Weil was pulled mid-shift to make some very serious decisions for his whole hospital, all while his own home was burning down and his family were in danger. That story causes me so much stress to just think about. I am sure Everyone has thought about Surge at least a little bit, and probably your team has wondered what you would do if members of your own team became sick. We thought about that here at UC Davis, and so I spoke with one of our team members who thought about it a lot. Dr. Dan Colby is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis and part of the ED clinical operations team. He explains how our emergency department prepared for a surge particularly from a physician staffing perspective. Dan, we had an idea at the end of 2019 that COVID-19 was going to be different. How did we prepare as a hospital for this different kind of surge? So, yeah, we have surge plans in place prior to COVID-19, but then we started seeing and hearing from our colleagues in Italy, our colleagues in New York. Um, and honestly, we started to get more nervous because those hospitals have surge plans as well. And it seemed like uh, surge plans that hospitals have, because COVID-19 is so unique, it's so infectious and the severity of disease can be so high and it all can come in a giant wave that your hospital can get overwhelmed really quickly. So we didn't want that to happen. Fortunately, it hasn't happened yet. And fortunately, uh, we had the time to thoughtfully but quickly make uh, a hospital and COVID-19 specific surge plan. What did that surge plan look like for our emergency department? We dusted off our, our previous surge plans for our department, which we hadn't had to use in a long time. And we saw things immediately we're like, oh, we should change that already. And then uh, just in general, we should make this better. And then specifically for COVID-19, we had to customize it. The isolation component of COVID-19 is such a huge part of caring for these patients. The PPE required and how to make sure you completely and adequately protect your physicians, nurses, techs, and all your staff. But also not use, doing so much that you burn through all your PPE because while at UC Davis we have relatively ample amounts compared to some places, you know, we saw hospitals burn through their PPE so quickly just because of the, the surge of patients they got. And then also finding space. Where do you put these patients? Because you can't put them all in the same room together, especially because in the ED, um, which makes it even harder, our patients are undifferentiated, meaning that we don't know if the patients have COVID when they hit the door. One person is short of breath, coughing, has a fever could have COVID, the other person could have COVID or could have the flu or pneumonia or something else. And so putting those two patients together would not be the right thing to do. So you have to keep them completely isolated. And that created space issues. You know, juggling all of that would just, honestly, uh, no emergency department in the country was truly designed with COVID in mind. What about the providers themselves? How did you plan for an increase in sick patients and a sustained increase at that? So at UC Davis, in our emergency department, we have a, a backup call system already in place. It's one of those call systems that's really designed for people who are sick or who need to take some sort of emergency leave. So we don't have a lot of physicians who are coming in on our call shifts. It's pretty rare occurrence, only you know once or twice a month really where it occurs. We alerted everyone that they might be having to come in 
a lot more often. And we designed triggers in place that said if we had this number of patients, this number of COVID patients, this level of acuity, this number of ICU patients, that if we met that criteria, we'd be calling the backup call physician in. And when we alert them, they would give them a heads up when we're at the preliminary triggers and then actually called them in when we hit the, the full triggers. And then we added another layer of backup call, a secondary backup call, just because we were worried that we might burn through the first layer. Part of this was also not just factoring in the, the possibility of a surge of patients, but then what if our physicians and nurses and other staff got sick themselves with COVID? Uh, so then you actually lose your staff right when you're getting a surge, and then you can't take care of patients adequately. Um, so we had the second layer of call. Um, and then the third thing we did was the hospital actually pulled all the outpatient physicians and groups and said who would volunteer to come work in different areas of the hospital. Um, and we tried to pair those level of expertise to where in the hospital they would be most benefit if they did have to work in the inpatient or in the emergency department. And so for our hospital, uh, we quickly identified and talked to our family medicine colleagues because their expertise is so general and so broad, similar to ours. Um, there's just more on the outpatient side and ours is more on the uh, acutely ill side. Um, but we paired with our family medicine physicians and, a, and a, a whole group of them volunteered to work in the emergency department if we needed them. So they were going to be the next layer that we'd call in if we hit certain triggers and certain level of surge if we needed the help. Did you have to train them or get them ready to take on that role? We produced a very quick catch-up or um, emergency medicine distilled version because all of them have worked in emergency medicine at some point in their training, but it might have been five, it might have been 10, it might have been 15 years ago. So it's a little reminder booklet, similar to what we produce for off-service residents that are coming to train their ED and then flushed out a little bit more. And that was what we, we, were, we had ready for our family medicine colleagues, but we never even had to fully activate that. We never even got close to it, or at least we haven't so far, again, knock on wood, um, because COVID, again, is not over. Um, we'll see what happens um, this summer, fall, and winter. Dan, how do you plan to maintain a safety of culture in the middle of a surge? Well, we can't let up at all. We have to be uh, vigilant at all times, even now. So this is a really interesting time that we're doing this interview now, just because with everything else going on in the world, some people are acting like we're going back to normal and we're, and we're not yet. So we're still assuming um, that you know every patient we're seeing with any symptoms that are similar to COVID could have COVID. And that constant reminder, that constant attention to the possibility will that hopefully keep us on guard if we do get a surge. And then we have to stay calm, we have to stay collected, but we also have to make sure we prioritize the safety of our patients and the safety of our staff. We've had situations where a patient was suffering from a bad medical problem and we had a rush in the room, but we also had to put on our protective equipment. And that's maybe different than we operated all the time before, to be honest, because uh, most diseases are not as infectious as COVID and not as uh, the same level of morbidity and mortality. So we have to remind everyone please protect yourself first and then run the room and then start whatever procedure you need to start. Let's talk about safety here. Did we adjust anything based off of our at-risk or higher-risk providers, our providers that were a little bit older or might have comorbidities that put them at risk for COVID-19? Yeah, kind of a high level above my pay grade. There was discussions that occurred to make sure people were comfortable. For a brief period, we had a influenza-like illness designated area that kind of compartmentalize COVID patients or suspected COVID patients that were not severely ill, but might be infectious and have symptoms. So we didn't want, we don't want them in our waiting room if possible, because we don't want to infect other people in the waiting room. And then we wanted to kind of cohort them together. And then we made that an optional shift that physicians could opt into. And that way, if a physician did have a comorbidity or, or other, other concerns, that they wouldn't have to work in that 
kind of a little bit higher risk area. Anything else you think we need to know principles for preparing for surge from a provider perspective? There was a huge amount of detail that went into not just the ED, but the hospital plan, because we made a plan to really almost triple the number of ICU beds your hospital could have. Um, and that included drafting hospitalists, internal medicine physicians up into kind of being de facto ICU physicians, um, even a way to deputize residents, including some ED residents, to be deputy attendings if we really hit a huge surge and we had a, a tremendous volume of critically ill patients. So it was definitely more than just the ED itself. The ED in isolation for something like this doesn't work. Yeah, the ED would get hit hard and quickly if the surge did hit immediately before the rest of the hospital was full. But then the problem would be the hospital would start to get full. And what do we do then? Um, so we had to factor in all these things. And it definitely was a team effort um, with our critical care physicians, our trauma medicine physicians, and administration of the hospital. Um, and then even our pediatric colleagues, such as yourself and the PICU and PEDS teams, offered to expand the patient population they normally see to higher ages. Um, and that was very generous and amazing. And, and that's great. And, and luckily, again, we haven't had to do it. Um, but that's a relief to know that that our pediatric colleagues have our backs as well. Oh, man, Sarah, I am not going to lie. It was super nerve wracking. The pediatrician and me trying to expand to take care of adults. I am so impressed with your breath of comfort. And in fact, this was something pediatricians did across the country, trying to take care of more adults or to get ready to take care of adults. And pediatricians even created the Popcorn Network, a multi-institutional collaborative, so that we can optimize adult care in pediatric areas of the hospital. We want to be a part of the solution. I think that's the point. To handle a surge well, we need to all rally together and expand out of our comfort zone in the safest ways possible. Networks like Popcorn and all of the other amazing foam resources created during COVID do just that. When it comes down to it, we are all in this together. So let's keep learning together. Rate us, share with your friends, and follow us at EM Pulse Podcast. See you next time.